Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS On Air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much and welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air. I am Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. Carol is a nationally known gerontologist. She's a head of the board chair for the National Council on Aging and executive director for the WellMed Charitable Foundation that uh, keeps you busy. It does. Just, just saying that keeps me keeps busy. Keeps you busy. Yeah, when I answer my phone, people wait for me to stop talking. And last week, you were our special guest on Caregiver SOS on air, talking about great tips for the holidays for caregivers. Yeah, I like that guest chair. It was really comfortable. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I have to volunteer to do that yeah, again sometime. we moved sometime. into the middle chair. Yeah. And today, our special guest is Dr. Marissa Charles, one of the newer WellMed physicians. You find her at the WellMed Clinic at Ingram. Uh, she'll talk a bit about patients who are diagnosed with dementia and other forms of dementia and Alzheimer's and talk, too, about uh, issues involving cancer, cancer screenings, and colon cancer. All yes. that's coming up. And, and all of that is related to the risk factors are related to old age. Um, oh, talking about that makes me tired. Maybe, I know. Maybe I'm I not know. getting enough sleep. How, how much do I need? Well, you know. Always is, used to be eight hours, boy. Used to be eight, eight hours. Yeah. So we've been talking, I don't know, for months about <laughs> sleep deprivation, how getting sleep is so important. You have to have sleep. It's the new thing. You know, the Western world, we have to have a minimum of seven hours of sleep. So guess what happened when I picked up the New York Times? You need more. <laughs> no. Somebody did a study and said, oh, heck, you know, um, we're going to figure out what it's, you know, it, supposedly the theory is that in modern technology with our TVs and our computers and our telephone screens, we're, you know, making our, bio re- our, our clocks reset at the wrong times, and we are a country of insomnia. And so one doctor from UCLA um, decided to go and look at tribes in areas of the world that don't have any technology and live pretty much the way they did thousands of years ago. There's still places without smartphones. You know, it's really hard <laughs> to find, but, you know, in, Tan- in Tanzania, wow. Tanzania, I actually had a taxi driver from Tanzania wow. this summer, and that's how he said it, and he's from there, so that's what I'm going to say, as well as some other place um, in Africa. And they studied their sleep patterns, and the theory has been that man was in sync with the sun, and we were supposed to wake up with the sun and go to bed with the sun and get all of this sleep, and now we don't anymore. So enter tribespeople, hunter-gatherer types from Tanzania, and they studied them, and what they found was they actually get up about an hour before the sun comes up, and they stay up three to four hours after the sun goes down. Who does this sound like? Sounds like they're all of us. Sounds like all of us. And they found that they really got about the same amount of sleep uh, or less. They get less sleep than most people in the United States. So, And they're healthy, and they don't have heart disease, and they're not obese. Um, So they get a good amount of activity. So you would think that with all that physical activity that they might need more sleep because they're burning up their energy. No, that's not true. Probably healthy because they don't have smartphones. Well, you know, I I was thinking, well, they take naps. They're not tied to the clock, so they probably get a siesta in the afternoon. No, that's not true either. Oh. (laughs) So So what's the conclusion? So the conclusion on this study is that maybe we prescribe too many sleeping-aged people (laughs) in the Western world 
um, because uh, if we go back to where we came from, uh, we actually find out that the theory is maybe it has to do with temperatures, that if you look at it's the coldest when you go to sleep, three to four hours after the sun goes down is when it starts getting the coldest, and it starts warming up about an hour before the sun comes up, temperatures go up again. So maybe we were designed to conserve our body heat, and it has to do with temperatures, and living in the modern world, climate-controlled world, maybe our problem, we we need to turn down the temperature so we sleep well and then set our little thermostats to turn up when it's time to wake up, and that might solve that insomnia problem. Interesting. I know. I thought that was fascinating. But wouldn't you know it, as soon as we find out (laughs) sleep, we need more sleep, now they say, oh, no, you don't. It's like egg yolks. I'm having flashbacks. I wonder if they've done a study like this on naked mole rats. You know, I'm sure the naked mole rat <laughs> sleep cycle is fascinating. I'll bet it is, I and we'll find is. out. We'll research that one. Well, speaking of sleeping, the hot term of late is mindfulness. So we have talked about hot. mindfulness almost as much as we've talked about sleep. Yes, and does it affect sleep? Well, here's the interesting thing. So mindfulness um, does take some practice, uh, and to do it correctly, you you really need to study it with someone who can teach you, practice it, and it can be a, a more of a long-term um, hobby that you develop or a, a practice that you develop. So they wanted to test whether you could teach mindfulness a short course uh, where people got a book um, and they got some simple instructions like videos. One was on mindful breathing. Were you actually thinking about breathing and doing that deep breathing, mindful um, uh, meditation where you're, you're feeling the different, experiencing positive emotions and feeling those, uh, and then mindful body scan where you actually go through all the different places in your body and you feel and think about those. So just those three practices, they sent them out to practice for two weeks, 10 minutes a day before work and after work. Uh, and the result of this was that these meditators had improvements in sleep quality, in sleep duration, and they improved in mindfulness. But on the downside, they didn't demonstrate any improved ability to disengage from their work stress. So in other words, if they had work problems on their mind, um, that didn't really improve. But they got better at the mindfulness by practicing the mindfulness, and it really did seem to help them sleep better so that they didn't have that, you know, wake up in the middle of the night with a heart pounding kind of a thing. I mean, the key is being able to turn the work mind off. Yes, turn the work mind off, um, relax, uh, and, you know, you're going to have to practice this regularly. So the benefits that you hear about from mindfulness require practice and meditation practice. But it's a good practice because mindfulness and meditation reduce stress. They can improve your cardiovascular health. They can improve your immune system. They can help you know, alleviate depression. So there are all kinds of good things from practicing mindfulness and meditation that are worth pursuing. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS On Air. She's Carol Zerniel. I'm Ron Aaron. You hear us on 930 AM, The Answer, Sunday afternoons at 6, right here on 930 AM, The Answer. Uh, you know the old line, hey, if you're 50 and you're overweight, big deal. By the time you're 60 or 70, you'll take the weight off. But it turns out it can be a problem Well, there's, for a lot of reasons. You know, we're talking about weight and we're talking about Alzheimer's. So what the studies have found, and this is again from the New York Times, was that being obese at age 50 increases the risk of Alzheimer's disease at a younger age. 
So we knew obesity increased risk of developing Alzheimer's. But the new piece of this is if you're obese at age 50, it, it's an earlier onset of Alzheimer's so that you get it when you're younger. They studied about 1,300 people for 14 years. That's a long study. That's one of those longitudinal, longitudinal yes. studies, yes. Um, and the uh, body mass index, you know, really correlated with how soon someone developed Alzheimer's for those that, wow. those that had the higher BMI developed Alzheimer's sooner of the 142 people that actually developed Alzheimer's. That kind of study is an example of why God created epidemiologists. Well, and that's it. So when we talk about Alzheimer's, we talk about what can they do about it. What we're trying to do, since we don't have a cure for it, is we actually want to delay the onset of Alzheimer's as long as possible, more good years. Right. And so I hate to say it, but excess, excess weight at age 50 may lead to, if you're going to get Alzheimer's, you're going to get it sooner. Ooh. Not well, good. No, not good. Not good. Another thing that is not good, it uh, turns out there's some fats that are bad, fats that are good, and some bad carbs. Well, you know, when I went to the Healthy Aging Summit uh, last summer in July in Washington, D.C., this is exactly, a, you know, this was an article. This is Jane Brody uh, on your health from the New York Times. And this is exactly what they said, was that all of us were somehow derailed in the 1970s when a study came out that said animal um, fat, that's high, high saturated fat and cholesterol, um, was bad. And somehow we all wanted to be fat-free. Right. And so we ran to these fat-free products, which um, reduce fat, fat-free, are rich in carbohydrates. So that's from crackers to sweetened yogurts. And what happened as a result of that, directly as a result of that, and they said the same thing at the conference, was this onset of obesity and type 2 diabetes because we got rid of the fat in our diets. And to make things taste good when you get rid of the fat, it upped the carbs. Substituted sugar. We substituted the sugar. And so now we the, pendum, the, the pendulum has swung too far in the other direction. <laughs> and we need to put the good fats back into our diets. So what are the good fats? They're the ones you've heard about in that Mediterranean diet. It's the olive oil. It's canola oil, avocado, um, nuts. And, and those can be high in, you know, like nuts and avocado can be high in calories. So you don't want to go crazy and eat a ton of them. Portion control is also an issue. Yes. Um, but good monosaturated fats, natural fats that are not complex, um, they have a, a, a low glycemic index and they're going to help keep off, you know, keep you from developing diabetes and help you, you know, control your weight as well. It's like instead of writing off all cheeses, there are some cheeses that turn out to be pretty good for you. Yeah, they do. You know, so when they, when we talk about glycemic index, you know, we're talking about how the, the amount of sugar it converts, your food converts to, and they compare everything to two, to two foods, which I thought was fascinating. So one of them is white bread and one of them is white rice. So the foods that, you know, they're saying... Both of which we've been told we shouldn't eat. Yeah. So the foods that, you know, have the highest glycemic index that we compare against white bread, all right, you're not going to be happy with this. So white bread, you know, a glycemic index number, um, pure glucose is 100. Pure glucose, pure sugar is 100. So a russet potato, which all of us eat potatoes, is 111. Wow. Is worse than pure sugar because it's a complex carbohydrate. It's going to break down to even more. White bread is a 71. A white baguette, 95. Cornflakes, 93. White rice, 89. Pretzels, 83. Instant oatmeal, 83. Gatorade, 78. 
Uh, yikes. It's got a lot of sugar in it. So you want to move to the other end of the spectrum. There are some pastas that are good for you, and we've been afraid of those pastas. Yeah, I've been. Spaghetti's only 46, fettuccine's 32, and apple's 39, chickpeas 10, and the winner for today is hummus with only six. Ooh. Which is I made like from hummus. chickpeas. Yeah. So it's actually hummus is good. Out. Hummus is good. So that edamame. I could live on hummus and edamame. Pen- peanuts are only seven. There's a problem with peanuts. Well, for some people that do have I can't stop eating them. You can't, that would be bad. How about yes. prunes? Can you stop eating them? They're only 29. Well, that's, <laughs> I'm not going to go there. <laughs> yeah, don't go there. In fact, fortunately, we're out of time for oh, this segment. That's too bad. Dr. Marissa Charles is up next, and uh, you're going to enjoy hearing from her. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air at 9.30 a.m., The Answer. Those of us who are eligible for Medicare know all too well it's difficult and confusing to navigate the maze of rules and regulations, but now there's good news. The Medicare Information Centers brought to you by WellMed provide all the information Medicare-eligible people may need on Medicare and Medicare Advantage health plan options, preventive health care, health topics, government-sponsored Medicare savings programs, and a whole lot more, and there's no cost for the service. The Medicare Information Centers by WellMed are your one-stop go-to resource for everything you need to know about Medicare and various other resources. Remember, open enrollment begins October 15th and continues through December 7th. Hey, don't do it alone. If you don't understand something, ask for help. It's available at no cost. Call 877-813-3134 for more information about open enrollment and for your appointment at one of seven Medicare Information Centers in San Antonio, 877-813-3134. And right now, at this very moment, on this Sunday afternoon, if you're listening to us on the radio, we have folks standing by at the Medicare Information Center to give you information on where to go, make an appointment so you can Partake in open enrollment to your benefit. That's the whole idea. Simply call 877-813-3134. 877-813-3134. I know it's Sunday afternoon if you're listening to us on the radio, but the folks are there right now to talk with you. The call is free. Uh, the service is free. 877 877-813-3134. Well, we promised she'd be with us, and sure enough, she is. Thank you for staying with us on Caregiver SOS on Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, and Dr. Marissa Charles joins us. She's a physician at the WellMed Clinic at Ingram, a graduate of Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine at the University of North Texas. Grew up in a tiny little town in Texas, Zapata, which when she was a kid had one traffic light. Thank you for coming on, Caregiver SOS on Air. I'm super happy to be here, Ron. And, and Carol Zerniel, when, when you think about uh, the difference between growing up in a great big city and growing up in a small town, you lived for a while in rural Wisconsin. I didn't actually. I visited in rural Wisconsin. I never grew up there. I'm from originally from the big town of Amarillo, well, Texas, So, which is a thriving metropolis as long as you don't come to places like San Antonio <laughs> or Dallas-Fort Worth or any other big city in Texas. And it turns out uh, no matter where you live, Dr. Charles, uh, Alzheimer's and dementia are everywhere. That's right. That's right. It's been a, a, a predominant problem around, um, well, all of my patients, uh, well, a majority of my patients that I see. So when a patient comes in and... You notice there's some dementia, there's some memory loss, there's some unusual behavior. Um, you know, how does that feel on your side to, you know, do you let it go for a while until people are concerned about it? Or do you feel like you need, you know, does the family already know? How does that usually play out? 
You know, it's such a difficult thing to, you know, it's a difficult conversation to start. And initially, um, you know, some patients initially will start to notice some mild memory loss. And of course, we want to address it and start thinking about, you know, uh, talking about maybe some uh, mental status changes as well, talking about many mental exams. And so we can evaluate how uh, how bad the mental uh, the memory loss is, and of course we ask the questions um, to you know to evaluate their memory loss initially. Sometimes it can be just mild forgetfulness. Sometimes it can be depression, um, which we also want to evaluate. And if they're having symptoms of depression along with the memory loss, and we want to always determine other symptoms that are going on at the same time, but. Um, you know, we always want to ask those questions. Do do most people know that they have a problem? Do you get the sense that, you know, they know something unusual is going on? Well, that's one of the big defining factors with some of the dementias, because if they know there's a problem, um, then it's more likely to be, um, you know, a certain type of memory loss as opposed to some of the Alzheimer's types of dementias where they may not realize they're having some of the uh, memory loss. What would the differences be in the types of... Uh uh, situation they're facing, if they know they have a problem, what would you suspect? Um, you know, there could be like, you know, other vascular type dementias. Um, like you're talking about like a stroke. Or right stroke. Parkinson's. Um, Parkinson's can also have some dementias associated with it. That's right. And we know that urinary tract infections often can trigger uh, symptoms that look like. Right. Uh, well, that's a, a little bit different. That's usually more of an acute onset uh, situation where one day to the next, all of a sudden they're confused or or having sudden onset of of confusion or memory loss. But that's a little bit of a different situation. So if they say, "My dad woke up today, he has, he has dementia." All, yeah, he has Alzheimer's. He woke up this morning and he caught Alzheimer's. Right. That's probably not, that's Alzheimer's. not Alzheimer's. That's not Alzheimer's. <laughs> right. You're not. It doesn't happen overnight. So that's good news. Right. It's probably not Alzheimer's. Probably not Alzheimer's. And usually you treat the, the situation, you treat the infection, and then generally their memory gets better. Now I want to come back to something uh, uh, Dr. Charles at Girlzernio mentioned, and, and that is uh, w- when you detect that there may be changes happening in your patient, uh, do you talk to the uh, caregiver, the family first, or the patient, or both at the same time? Um, well, I often will, you know, start the conversation with the patient and get a little bit of an evaluation. We always want to make sure that there's no laboratory changes that could be a source of the problem. You know, we, we look at the patient as a whole, uh, make sure they're nutritionally intact and that they're eating well and that they're, you know, some of these uh, patients, when they're on their own for a long time, they start to have just their little tea and toast and um, don't get a good nutritional um, diet, and so the, sometimes they become anemic or start getting deficient in some of their B vitamins, and that can cause some problems with their memory and dementia as well. In talking with some of the women physicians who make house calls, uh, we find that uh, they often will go into a home and, and discover that uh, the refrigerator has no food in it, the cupboards are bare, uh, something that you wouldn't know unless you went into a home. Definitely. Uh, are you making any house calls? I haven't been making any house calls. Um, No, I haven't made any house calls myself, but we do have a team that goes out to the homes um, to make those house calls, yes. Well, and I I think a lot of people don't realize that diet and nutrition can have such a 
an implication on a person's functioning. You know, when you mentioned the tea and toast, I, I have this vision in my head of the little lady sitting at the table with the tea and toast every day, maybe for breakfast and lunch or breakfast and dinner. It's got two couple of meals a day because, you know, they live alone. They may not feel like cooking. Exactly. Um, and that's easy and it's lovely and it's fine, but it's not fine because they're not getting any nutrients. Well, it's where Meals on Wheels can play a role. Definitely. In terms of delivering. You know, I I had a little patient that we did send a team out um, to go check her in her home, and they found um, that she had bread, uh, little cans of pineapple, and um, I think milk, and that's all she had. So she would go to the store with her little list, or maybe she wouldn't even make a list, and those were the three things that, you know, she would think that she needed. So those were the three things she would buy. Bread, bread, pineapple, and milk. Mm-hmm. And the milk doesn't even go with the pineapple. I'm I sorry. Know. It just doesn't. Sounds so. like uh, clues <laughs> in a mystery. <laughs> you know? You know. So what do you so, do in a situation like that? Because you realize uh, unless there's food coming in some other way, she's not uh, getting a balanced, nutritious uh, meal. Right, right. So, you know, you always want to make sure that the family's involved. You want to make sure that she's got, you know, support from, from you know, other sources. And if there's not, then you get APS involved. Um, which, which is Adult Protective Services. Uh, correct. Um, if she doesn't have enough support from, from her family. And, and Carol, you, you recently ran a uh, years-long program with Adult Protective Service looking at interventions for suspected uh, domestic violence and uh, battery and assault on, on seniors. Uh, and you've worked closely with, with some of their people. They're very caring. Absolutely. Um, you know, we talk about... Um, abuse, neglect, and exploitation. And what we've learned from working with Adult Protective Services is that self-neglect is the highest, that is the highest incidence of neglect. So what she's describing, an older person who stopped cooking and stopped eating well and stopped taking care of their home and stopped taking care of themselves, that's very common. And oftentimes people don't think that Adult Protective Services can help that one senior who's not taking care of themselves. You know, in a, in a, Dr. Charles sees this as medical neglect. They're probably mm-hmm. not taking care of their diabetes. They're not taking right. care of any of their chronic conditions. But that's, that's a person that can be reported to APS. And Adult Protective Services is not going to come in and yank that person out of their home and say, game over. You know, they're going to go in and maybe offer them Meals on Wheels, maybe offer them some homemaker services to get them back on their feet until we can decide, do we, can we bring resources into this home? Do we have family members we can get in touch with? Or do we need to have this person live someplace else because they're right. not safe? Right, to keep them independent as long as possible, which is always what we want to try to do. And but when, if when, they're not safe, then... When you reach out to family, do you find that uh, they're receptive? A lot of times, yes. But, you know, there are situations where either there isn't any adult children or there isn't any... Or the other um, family members, you know, have so many other things on their plate that they just cannot... Um, offer the time or, you know, the energy that it would take to take responsibility for another family member. As you see someone and diagnose someone with uh, some form of dementia, Alzheimer's mm-hmm. or other forms of, of dementia, uh, you begin what is a either short or long-term downward spiral for that patient. Are mm-hmm. you able to work with them and keep them as independent as possible for as long as possible? Yes. You know, we, we try our best. You know, there are some medications that will Slow the progression some. You know, the, the treatments for the dementias aren't great. You watch the ads on TV, man. It's a miracle drug. I take I this know. and look at that. Grandpa's out there pitching Little League again. I know. You know, and I wish it were that easy, but it's it's really not. You know, and sometimes we work with specialists. You know, we try to get them to neurologists if possible. But even so, you know, we, we try to rule out 
um, any structural you know lesions, make sure there's no tumors, nothing of that of that nature. But as long as there's nothing like that going on, you know, we do the best that we can with the medications available. And once those have run their course, then um, you know we just support them as best we can. And, and so a lot of what happens with people with Alzheimer's is you can with the with the physician's guidance. Um, helping to take care of medications and, you know, if there's anxiety or depression, mm-hmm. which often takes place with someone with Alzheimer's, you know, what we on on the caregiver side do is modify the environment. So, you know, we're either bringing in those meals or we're um, making things, you know, easy choices at home so there's less confusion or, or bringing in help inside the home as well. Uh, but it's it's so unfortunate that, Alzheimer's is so prevalent, mm-hmm. and there's so little we have to offer on the mm-hmm. medical side and on the social services side. Mm-hmm. As you look at the literature and get your crystal ball out, uh, are there any treatments on the horizon that offer hope for Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia? That would be a no. I'm just reading, <laughs> I'm just reading your body language. <laughs> She's trying to figure out how to say this tactfully, right? Um, I mean, the research is constantly, you know, they're constantly trying to come up with new um, medications and, and new treatments for, you know, for Alzheimer's. And there's, you know, I mean, there's research going on. You know, I'm sure there there's new treatments that they're going to that they're going to come up with. But no, um, I've not heard of anything in particular that's made any huge difference. Well, we can only hope. Of course. And at the National Council on Aging. Carol is board chair for the NCOA. Mm-hmm. Are they pushing for this kind of research as well? Well, anybody that's involved in aging at all certainly supports the notion that we, you know, we have to do something with Alzheimer's, whether it's delay its onset, reduce mm-hmm. the symptoms, uh, you know, and I, you know, cure aging. So that which is the, you know, the primary reason people get Alzheimer's. Um, so we we do need to do something, or, or we're going to be spending a lot of money on long-term care and taking care of people with Alzheimer's. We're going to have more with Dr. Marissa Charles and Carol Zerny in just a couple of moments. I'm Ron Aaron. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m. The answer, we're going to find out about uh, treatment and aftercare for other issues that face seniors uh, like cancer and other debilitating diseases. She is board certified in family practice, a WellMed physician at the Ingram WellMed Clinic. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel and our special guest, Marissa Charles, is with us. We were talking uh, just a little bit ago about Alzheimer's and uh, caregivers who deal with patients with Alzheimer's. Uh, there's another area where caregivers get awfully busy and awfully uh, committed and involved is where uh, patients are suffering from uh, diseases like cancer. Yes, definitely. Um, so I did want to speak briefly about colon cancer, you know, and that's something else that we always wanted to make sure that we're doing enough screening and that people are aware about their um, colon cancer screening re- um, recommendations. So that's that colonoscopy word, right? Woo-hoo. Yes, definitely. Having, had, at my age, uh, Many colonoscopies. The drugs are so much better. It's fun now. Really. <laughs> oh, it's fun. Oh, yeah. There's oh, it's fun. Like he it. says yeah. it's fun. It's fun. <laughs> and uh, I, I have a friend dead now from colon cancer. Actually, two friends uh, for lack of a colonoscopy. You know, and had they had a colonoscopy early on, uh, the cancer uh, would have been seen, would have been dealt with, and odds are they would have survived. Right? Well, it's about it's the fourth um, 
most common cancer um, in both men and women. So it is definitely a uh, a commonly diagnosed cancer. It is a preventable cancer, and screening should start at 50. And, and preventable how? Well, with the colonoscopies, uh, definitely they can identify uh, colon polyps. They can remove colon polyps, and they can um, save you from um, having to deal with a colon cancer later in life. So, And for those who shall remain nameless who could be a co-host on this show who's hesitant to go in for a colonoscopy, mm-hmm. as were you that individual's physician, Carol mm-hmm. Zerniel, what would, you, what would you say to her? I would say that the – well, I actually recently had my sister who turned 50 not too long ago. Um, I made her go. I actually took a day off of work and said, all right, we're going to – Drink this. Uh, We're gonna drink this together. Is that well, what you I said? didn't drink it? I didn't drink it, but I made her drink it, and um, I took her, um, which was actually not that fun because uh, when back in Zapata, which is where I was practicing at the time, um, the nearest hospital is an hour away, so I did have to drive her an hour to the um, surgical suite. So that was not that fun after she drank all that stuff. But well, um, you made a lot of pit stops along the uh, way. A couple. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but. Um, it's just so important. It's just so important. And they did actually find a polyp, and they were able to remove it. And so, you know, may have saved her from colon cancer in a couple of years. So, so. so if they find a polyp, does that mean they just remove it right there while you're under? Like while you're under while you're asleep. Yeah. So, so, you know, what yeah. I tell a lot of patients is, you know, they're almost like moles. They're almost like moles, you know, but that you develop, but on the inside. So mm-hmm. just like you can have moles that develop on your skin on the outside – some of them are precancerous and some of them are not. Like some people will develop moles and they don't ever turn into anything bad. That can happen on the inside too. But you can't look at a person and know if they're the type that develop these moles on the inside. And so um, I've had patients that I have sent that have come back with more than 15 polyps in there. And they looked perfectly fine on the outside and had absolutely no symptoms. And I've had patients that I've sent that have come back with absolutely zero polyps back on the colonoscopy. So when they're in there, they are able to remove the polyps. We've had patients that we've talked into going um, that were completely asymptomatic, that they have removed polyps that were millimeters from, that were cancerous, that were millimeters from invading. um, Something else, which is bad. Now, the danger is is when they go through the colon uh, into the rest of your body, which is what happened to my friend uh, Jerry Smith, who had been Head of law enforcement at ACOG for many years, wow. former police oh, chief. I a remember wonderful, Jerry wonderful Smith guy. at ACOG. Well, you worked at ACOG. Jerry Smith was just the salt of the earth, uh, and uh, it was for lack of a colonoscopy. I have a friend, Jerry Knackman, who was uh, head of uh, uh, CBS uh, News in New York, at TV News, and just a wonderful guy, died of colon cancer. That's terrible. So preventable, you know, and and you have to start at 50, and it really depends on what they find once you're in there, um, how often you have to have them. If it's completely, absolutely negative and they find zero polyps, then you don't have to have another one for 10 years. So if you have – and it – does family history play into that Definitely. at all? Yes. People that have family um, increased family history of uh, colon cancers are more likely to um, have polyps. But it all depends on what they find when they're in there. So if they find precancers, and it depends on what kind of polyps they find when they're in there as well. So right. some of the polyps are precancers and some of them are not. So if they're relatively um, benign polyps, they may say, 
we'll repeat it in five years. If they're precancerous lesions, they might say, we'll do it again in three. I've also seen some people that had so many lesions that they say, no, we're doing this again in a year. So, Which it, is, you want, if, if you're that person... Mm-hmm. then it's much better to f- see the doctor again and, and drink the stuff and do it again in a oh, year yes. than to not participate at all Definitely. in the testing. Well, they're getting Absolutely. better and better at the amount of stuff you have to drink in terms of That's what, you're, right. all, what has, you're really doing is cleaning less. out your bowel. And it's so important to do it appropriately as well because you if... You can't say anything if you That's don't right. clean That's it out. That's right. Yeah, if you if the doctor goes in there with a the camera and you still have a lot of stool and the prep is not appropriate, then they just see stool. It's just dirty in there. So. And you come back again. Right. And then because, you have to do it again. Well, you can imagine, you know, if they look in there with a the camera and they might miss a right. big polyp, they might miss a cancer. Can't see it. Mm-hmm. Now, if, without naming names, someone may have kind of missed that colonoscopy at age 50, no it's never deal. too late to begin. Never too late. Go get it done. Absolutely. Then there's always the, the rectal exam at the doctor's office. You can always have that as the alternative. But it's but not it as good go a test. But it doesn't go in far enough. Mm-mm. It's not as good a test. Um, we still do it. I actually um, had a patient that was refusing to, because we always do the, the fecal occult blood test. We'll send people home with the little packet. Right. To do the, um, you know, the little colon screen just to test the stool for blood. Um, and that's a, a good preliminary test. But because it's hit and miss. It's hit and miss because so as stool is moving through your intestine, if there's polyps in there, it's scratching or it's rubbing on those polyps and it's irritating them and they bleed. Okay, but then you could have a little hemorrhoid that bleeds, and that might cause the test to turn po- test to become positive. There's other things that could make that test positive. If you eat a particularly bloody steak the night before, you could also have a accidentally positive hemoglobin. You check blood the DNA, test. and it turns out to be cow blood. <laughs> right? Wow. <laughs> which which uh, we were talking before the show. Mm-hmm. Some of the meats are getting a bad rap. That's about right. About colon cancer, That's I believe right. the bacon and ham and hot dogs and sausage the world, crew. Yeah, the World Health Organization just released a statement. Um, it's actually the International Agency for Research on Cancer, the IARC just released a, a paper um, that does implicate uh, processed meats and meat in general um, in colorectal cancer. And now, this is not new. No. There's always been concern. Oh, yeah. Um, most, um, especially, you know, pay, uh, the American Cancer Society has been, you know, recommending people avoid processed meats for years. Well, processed means... Processed means uh, meats that have been cured, salted, um, such as bacon, um, hot dogs, um, ham. Ham. I think barbecue is there because they've, um, they've yeah, anything smoked some up. Yeah, it's smoked, been smoked, grilled. And, yeah, anything along those lines is more likely to cause um, to have carcinogenic effects. Now, I, I have to admit, I was a little amused at the response from one of the meat associations that was saying that bacon was an important protein source. And I'm thinking about a small little piece of bacon and just how much protein is there. How much bacon do you have to eat for it to be? To get protein. To get protein out of it. I don't know. I'm going to go back and look at the package. Goodness. I I can't imagine it's... It tastes really good, but as a a meal, as your meat for your meal, it's an accoutrement. But what makes it taste so good? Yeah, that's the... It's the fat. It's the fat it's in and there. And the frying. So, mm-hmm. and, and they did say um, in the guidelines, it, it's like anything that's 
you know, in it, moderation. It has the bacon to do with the amount of yeah. meat that you're eating. It's of that course. pile. It's the all-you-can eat buffet bacon that's not Ooh. good for you. Right. And and it's about the amount that you're eating on a daily basis. And the people that eat a, a regular amount of processed meat every day are at higher risk for developing colon cancers. So I would say if you have high risk for colon cancer anyway, um, so if you have that, you know, family history of colon cancer, um, the other risk factors are smoking, high alcohol consumption, obesity, you know, all of those things increase your risk, sedentary lifestyle. So, and a lot of those kind of go hand in hand, you know, some of those people may already consume a lot of that processed meat. Right. So, and they did, and the meat people did say that it may not be, they're saying it's maybe it's not the maybe meat. Maybe it's not us. Maybe it's not the meat. <laughs> maybe it's the lifestyle. But I believe they controlled for that in some of the experiments. Sounds like what some of the uh, sugared soda manufacturers are suggesting. It's lifestyle, not the sugar in our sodas Mm. that cause so many problems. (laughs) You've just joined us. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel and our special guest today, WellMed physician, Dr. Marissa Charles. You find her at the Wellman Clinic at uh, Ingram Park Mall, right next to the Doris Griffin One Stop Senior Center. So I have by to Wellman. I have to ask: Have you been over to the Senior Center oh, next goodness. door? It is dreamy. It is so fun. Have Dream- you guys gotten to go? Dreamy she and created fun. it. I actually run the Senior Center, so that's yeah. my I consider oh, it my center. It's your baby. Yeah. I love it. I, mean, she, I love uh, it. Right next it door. It was her vision to put these centers uh, together, and they have worked. Remarkably well. Do you recommend that your patients oh, every day. go there? Every day. I, I talk them all into going and getting signed up. It's free. I'm actually very sad when you know I get one that's a little too young to go. It's it's very sad. I wish they could all go. They only have to be <laughs> 60 and over. So. I know. Every now yeah. and then I get one that's a little bit too young. I'll get like a, 50, a 55 year old. And I'm like, oh, I can't send you next door. I'm so sorry. Because it's fantastic, and that, they, that's the that is the antidote to a sedentary lifestyle, mm-hmm. um, as well as depression and some other things. Is getting oh. together with other people your age um, and younger and older, mm-hmm. uh, and participating in activities. But that brings oh. up another really important point. I mean, to cut you off, Doctor sure. Charles, but socialization and versus loneliness. Oh, it's so it's. It's fantastic. I actually had a patient that came in not too long ago that was so sad because she had just turned 65 and she was about to retire from work. She was sad about this. I was like, really? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And she was like, you know, it's just such a milestone. And, you know, I'm having to fill out all these paperwork, all this paperwork for Medicare. And, you know, it's just so depressing that I have to stay home now. And I think I'm going to go nuts. And, you know, I'm going to drive my husband crazy. And it's terrible. And I'm so depressed about it. I said, go next door (laughs) and sign up, take a tour and go take all those classes. You know, you need to go get yourself signed up and meet all these ladies um, that, you know, put all these classes together. It's fantastic. There is not, you know, they're active. They are learning new things. You don't have to feel like retiring is the end of your rope. You don't have to feel like there's nothing new to learn. And she can begin volunteering. Exactly. I said, you have a lot to teach. Um, This particular lady was retiring from nursing. So she'd been a nurse for many years. Or, yeah, and she worked in a hospital. And she was just like, I'm going to sit and twiddle my thumbs. I said, no, you still have so many things to offer. You go next door. Well, what happens to patients who sit and twiddle their thumbs and do nothing? 
They deteriorate. Ooh, they deteriorate. Yeah. It's um yeah. It's physics. <laughs> Got to stop you right there. Thank you. Are you accepting new patients? Yes, we are absolutely accepting new patients at Ingram. Dr. Marissa Charles, and uh, just stop by. You can meet her. You're happy to talk to folks, and mm-hmm. you may become her next patient. Correct. We thank you for coming on Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. Up next, Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman. Those of us who are eligible for Medicare know all too well it's difficult and confusing to navigate the maze of rules and regulations, but now there's good news. The Medicare Information Centers brought to you by WellMed provide all the information Medicare-eligible people may need on Medicare and Medicare Advantage health plan options, preventive health care, health topics, government-sponsored Medicare savings programs, and a whole lot more, and there's no cost for the service. The Medicare Information Centers by WellMed are your one-stop, go-to resource for everything you need to know about Medicare and various other resources. Remember, open enrollment begins October 15th and continues through December 7th. Hey, don't do it alone. If you don't understand something, ask for help. It's available at no cost. Call 877-813-3134 for more information about open enrollment and for your appointment at one of seven Medicare Information Centers in San Antonio, 877-813-3134. And the good news is there are folks standing by right now to talk with you about Medicare Information Centers. They'll make an appointment for you, get you in for any questions you may have about open enrollment. Call 877-813-3134. They're there right now to talk with you. I know it's Sunday afternoon, but they are working. So put them to work, 877 813-3134. The call is free, and guess what? The service is free. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Take 10. Take 10 follows each of our Caregiver SOS programs. And along with Carol Zernio, we're joined by nationally known therapist and expert on caregiving. Dr. Jamie Heisman is with us, also knows a whole lot about addictions, which puts him at the top of the list for helping people. And Carol, you had a great idea for uh, topic number one for Take 10, and it really follows our very special guest, Meryl Comer. Uh, Her quick advice to caregivers was? Was don't second-guess the caregiver. If you're a family member... Your five-minute visit or one-hour visit doesn't mean that you know everything that's going on. Uh, and if the caregiver's in there every day, don't second-guess them, which leads me to ask the question, Jamie, um, what about families? You know, we, we always, there are always the questions about the family, the family members who have too much advice that seem to know better than you, even though you're the caregiver, you're down there doing all of the work 24-7, or families that don't help. So what is it about families, and how do we get it right? Well, you know my thoughts, Carol. Getting it right requires getting a third party engaged, because this is an excellent, excellent topic for our listening audience. Everybody seems to want to second-guess somebody else, but the motives behind that come from so many different places. I, I believe they come from guilt, sometimes from shame. If it's a long-distance caregiver, they're not present to be with somebody, and their loved one is being taken care of, let's say, by a sibling or somebody else. And that's a huge feeling of powerlessness. 
So, you know, second guessing comes, unfortunately, with fear, uh, that old acronym, false evidence appearing real. But it also becomes from clinical projections, meaning we're not there. So we're going to second guess it rather than feel comfortable trusting that person's instinct who is with them. Uh, we tend to get very, very anxious. So this is like the armchair quarterback. That, you know, we've got the professionals and we have the coach and that those of us at home sitting in the chair watching the game know more what's going on than that coach. Who's I on can't the field. believe they ran that play. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly that, Ron. I, I can't believe they ran that play. Now, nobody's in the middle of the mix. Nobody's getting the handoff, as you say, Carol, with the quarterback uh, analogy. Instead, we're, we're second-guessing and second-looking, and, and that's really a challenge here. That's why it's so critical to get this third person involved, because a lot of, I think, prep work needs to be done before a family enters into caregiving using one of their loved ones or, or siblings or family members as the primary caregiver. And when the caregiving tasks start coming fast and furiously, I always believe the first thing you need to do is involve the social worker, geriatric care manager, or the like. Right. Had a situation like this here in San Antonio, a very good friend of mine, a brother and a sister, mother needed care, couldn't live alone. So he assumed the responsibility. She lived in another city and constantly criticized, constantly criticized. So one day he said, I'm putting mommy on a plane. Here's when she arrives. You can do it better. Obviously, you take care of her. She was back in San Antonio within two weeks. And then the sister said, you're right. You take it over. I'm out of this. <laughs> you, yeah. You're doing it right all along. Exactly. I was so wrong. But, but think about that, Ron. It's what you say makes sense, and, and it obviously proved the point, uh, yeah. no doubt. But think about it just simply because two adults, meaning the two people who were kind of quibbling with the, you know, the poor person who had a chronic illness right. or an illness. Yeah, in the between. mother in the middle. Yeah, it's like a badminton and a birdie piece. Couldn't those two have done the right thing and say, look, we both have differences. We both have different approaches to life. We actually, mom may have loved you or not loved you more or whatever the reasons are. Maybe we should get a third party to help us facilitate and mediate. So what is a geriatric care manager for those that don't know what that is? Well, I always say they're air traffic controllers who have a huge extensive curriculum uh, background in seniors and, and geriatrics. I also know that if anybody can relate to a social worker or a nurse today, those are the two professions that are pretty much the, 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 the preponderance, if you will, of, of geriatric care managers. There is a geriatric care management association that our listeners can always Google, and they will actually target people in different states uh, by zip codes. But to me, the best analogy is the air traffic controller, except they're skilled. They're extraordinarily skilled in people skills. They're, they're skilled in, in group skills, family issues, and they will be able, and this is, might be the most important thing, is to target the strengths and weaknesses of each one and how they all fit together to help the care, not only of the loved one, but of the primary family caregiver who is there. Well, and I will give an example. I actually did exactly what you said at one point. I called a, the, I looked online for, under the Geriatric Care Manager Association for a relative in another location. And then I, when I flew into town, I had set up appointments at a coffee shop, you know, an hour apart with two, my two top candidates um, as a geriatric care manager. And then I just sat down and had a conversation, kind of talked through what was going on with the care recipient, with the person, my, the family member we're caring for, what was going on with the family, and then kind of tried to get a feel for how they responded 
to that situation. And after interviewing both of them, and I picked the one that I felt the most comfortable with. Well, Carol, that's the ideal way to interview. It goes, again, you're trusting your gut, but then again, you are a gerontologist, so your gut has a few more years of academics attached to it. <laughs> I've got more gut than most people. Don't we throw all that aside? Obviously, I'm a therapist, and as I mentioned always, that I'm a therapist. My sister's a therapist, and God rest my mother's soul, she was a therapist. So anytime a problem hit our house, we were Mo, Larry, and Curly. I was going to say, definition is, uh, of a therapist is someone who needs a therapist. Well, without a doubt, without a doubt. But, but so I'm not, your, your academic you know, work may not have mattered there because you still were a relative. But yes, you're 100% right. Why don't you have the direct care worker or the geriatric care manager or whomever you're interviewing go through scenarios like that, Carol? It's an ideal way to interview. All right, hold that thought. For those of you who just joined us, you're listening to Take 10 on Caregiver SOS on Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Dr. Jamie Heisman and Carol Zerner. And we're talking about when your caregiver gets little, no, or non-productive help from other family members. So talk to us as a shrink, Dr. Jamie. What is the psychology going on in the mind of the distant caregiver who knows she, she or he can do it better and insists on telling you that? Well, they're obviously not feeling what's happening in real time, Ron. You know, and, and real time is you can never predict human behavior. Uh, the family caregiver who is there and the, the person who is ill are going through their own drama and trauma on an ongoing basis. And that's really totally not even uh, available to that long-distance caregiver. So the long-distance caregiver also has this incredible button where they start dreaming the horribles in their mind. And if they really didn't have a great relationship with the primary caregiver or really didn't have a great relationship with the, the care receiver, they really get anxious. And when they do, their imagination runs amok. Yeah, running amok is not good in no. any situation. Running amok is bad. Yeah, and it makes also the person who has the illness or has the issue even feel worse and feel unsafe. So this is why it's so critical to surround the person with the chronic illness uh, or even worse, a terminal illness with safety and with boundaries and with a family that can talk and get it together. But to do that, again, you probably need a facilitator. So do you have, depending on if, let's say, if the person has capacity, if, they're, if the person you're caring for um, is able to think clearly and make their own decisions, do you involve them in that conversation with that geriatric care manager? Do you talk I in front do. of them? Yeah, 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 Carol, it's a great question. I always do. The last thing, if somebody can actually cognitively handle it, is that you want to marginalize them. You want them to have self-esteem and meet you as close as they can to halfway, so neither burn out. You want them to feel relevant, so you have to. Obviously, if they're not cognitively able to, able to, then that's another issue. But the interesting thing is what we're describing in this radio show is that sometimes the family, for whatever reasons of nervousness and depression or guilt, they're not even cognitively able to. So it's very important to get that person. <laughs> that's right. For, yeah, that's kind of like uh, throwing stones. <laughs> and if the other parties won't participate, won't listen? They, that's a clear uh, directive to you that they're not going to get involved, and you really need to, to let go, let God on that one, and just work with the cards you're dealt. I think a good geriatric care manager will be able to frame that up and reframe it up for other family members, but the last thing you want to do is beat your head up against the wall or have, have your loved one even experience that drama and trauma of beating your head up against the wall. Well, just move on to what you have. Right, and that's so important because you don't want somebody caring for someone who doesn't want to be there caring for them. It's, uh, that's a disaster waiting to happen. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Jamie, last question. Uh, this probably turns out to be more common than anybody could imagine. 
Absolutely. This is all the time. In fact, just like addictions, which is interesting, it becomes a family illness because the addiction ricochets off of everybody. I always talk about this, and it's probably another whole show ahead of us, is the co-addiction, the codependency that family caregiving kicks in. So I see this happening across the country, and places like Caregiver SOS are places where you can get some sanity back and Thank hear you. these words. CaregiverSOS.org is the place you can go for sanity. Thank you to Dr. Jamie Heisman, Carol Zerniel. I'm Ron Aaron. We will talk with you again soon right here on 930 AM, The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer.